Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Softly Die Living podcast, sponsored by, you guessed it, Softly. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we have with us Jake Denman, uh, coming all the way from, is it Brooklyn, New York? Queens. Queens, New York. One of those other boroughs on the street. When, right. I thought, you were, <laughs> I thought you were in Brooklyn, but maybe I just made that up in my mind. I used to be. All right. Brooklyn's where all the Trustafarians hang out. Property Co- values have gone up. Can we say coming from Brooklyn via Queens? Sure. But, all right. And, uh, man, Jake is, uh, Jake's been kind of with Softly from basically, I think, the, the very beginning. And, you know, but kind of in the, in the shadows, maybe, if you will. And I'm excited to sit down and kind of chat about all the stuff that Jake's been working on and, and his recent travels to Europe and some pretty cool projects that uh, that he's wrapped up and and what he's doing as he transitions away from a a full career in the army to civilian life. So, Jake, welcome. Thanks. Good to have you. Um, man, I don't even know kind of exactly where to start, but I guess if we want to kind of take it back a little bit, um, it actually turns out that you and one of the one of the partners at Softly, Nick, like worked together way back in the day. Is, <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah. Me and Nick were in uh, two seven five together. We did a trip. We we met and uh, became thunder buddies. Uh, we went on a trip in summer of two thousand one, right before nine eleven, to West Point to train West Point cadets. Uh, that's the best job the Army gives guys. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had some pretty good some pretty good stories from uh, making trips into the city. Uh, that summer, yeah, fun stuff. When we were actually at the hog hunt last year, who was it? Uh, Bill Heffron. Yeah, was uh, Bill was in the class that I think you guys went to. Tr- like that was his, I don't know, plebe year. <laughs> and uh, Bill has good stories to tell. Anyway, yeah, Bill, so. had, Bill had some <laughs> good stories to tell. I think including you guys like painting a bunch of stuff pink for those guys. I don't. I forget most things remember. that happened. All right. but, <laughs> Take, uh, hey, Jake, can you tell us a story about when you went to basic training? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've found like I've, people that I've come across that I trained, whether that or like when I worked at uh, RIP, now RASP, people would come up and give me this big story. And I'm like, yeah, that, that was a big deal for you. For me, that was fucking Wednesday. <laughs> oh, come Just, on, man. Do you uh, remember the time when that one guy games. at 30th AG tried to jump off the roof of the building and kill himself? <laughs> like, oh. Uh, <laughs> That's no. uh that's a daily activity at 30th AG. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But then we went down range, man. <laughs> so I um I love the fact that Jake's been part of the crew from day one. Uh your brother and I shoot together. Uh, I've had a great time getting to know you. Frankly, uh you're someone who makes me feel like I am not the largest hipster in the soft community. So there's that (laughs) one. Like uh, Jake used his phone to fix his hair before this radio broadcast just to make sure. Yeah. You got to look good when you do bad things, man. (laughs) We don't know if we're even doing bad things yet. This barely started. (laughs) There's cameras everywhere in this building, man. That is where bad things start, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so yeah, I guess, you know, 
how how originally did you find Softlead, and you know what what was kind of the the first the first inclination of man like I want to get involved with what these guys are doing. Uh it was it was the team room. I saw the team room. Uh, I had a couple of friends that were in there. Um, I came in, and then uh, Brent, I think, reached out to me and gave me a call and made me an admin. And I wrote uh, I wrote I wrote an article uh, or two, and kind of the rest is history. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, I was a bit in the shadows there for a while because I was still active duty, so I was kind of just you know helping guys out behind the scenes and stuff. And now as I'm I'm retired now, so I can say stuff and you know use my name and all that. Please, so. like you didn't say stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, so yeah, that was it was Brent, I think, that originally brought me in. And well, yeah. you have to understand, like this this is a good time for us to delve into the murky underbelly of the soft community. We were we were talking earlier about how there's a strange penchant uh, amongst soft guys where. When you get out, guys typically forget their compass and they just start like doing whatever is good for them. And I know that when we first met Jake, we were like, well, Jake knows these guys. Like, what's the vet? Like, does, what does he think about them? And then you're like, it's this whole dog sniffing tails thing. Like, so if Jake knows so-and-so and so-and-so knows so-and-so, then Jake's okay. This is a dangerous <laughs> process. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, right. like. So, yeah, it's it. You got to be careful who you tie your wagon to, you know, because the the six degrees of Kevin Bacon can bite you in the ass. You know, maybe not today or tomorrow, but oh, eventually, someday, eventually it's gonna get quickly, you. man. Yeah, yeah. Well, but honestly, that's one of the things that I think. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned being being a team room daddy for softly admin <laughs> swinging the ban hammer, <laughs> but I also think that oh, to avoid confusion. For all of the people who are on the internet, this is actually Jericho. This is his his, <laughs> his nom de guerre for right. crushing souls on the internet is Jericho, or at least Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, man, I'm actually. I think it's super awesome that <clears throat> you are a in, like an intelligent, an independent thinker. You know, so many guys are just towing the line or getting riled up or kind of beating the drum, lighting the torches, whatever whatever kind of uh, you know cliche analogy you want to use. But I love the fact that oftentimes you're a guy that can step out and in a, a fairly calm but also firm way kind of be like, hey, listen, don't believe the bullshit. Stop. Don't just get on the fucking bandwagon and uh, really kind of give like a very clear independent view of you know potentially like politically charged or strongly opinionated situations and i think that that is something that's just becoming like increasingly rare finding people that that can form their own opinions and also intelligently you know vocalize them well accept opposing opinions online. right too like that's one thing that i like about jake is like when we have conversations like we clearly have our opinion about how things should be yeah, but yeah. we're willing to listen to other people until they say things like you know jet fuel doesn't melt steel at which point <laughs> right. i get out a paper bag and shit in it and mail it to their house <laughs> like, yeah i you know i i like look back at a uh, i look back on my kind of life and career and trying to figure out because i recognize that among my peer group i have pretty a pretty differing uh a set of value not values but just opinions uh on things and i look back and i try and figure out what it is that that made me this way if you want to 
say it like that. And it, I don't know. I think um, I've could talked. You t- could you tell me about what made you like that <laughs> in a 4 a.m. post on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> Cold-blooded. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah I, and I've talked to you. Know, one of the things that I was like really into in my last few years in the Army was was figuring out uh, the culture of organizations and 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 uh, you know looking at the different Ranger battalions or SF groups or SEALs or any of those guys and and thinking why are they the way they are as a group and then as individuals institutionalized and, inbreeding yeah yeah <laughs> three seven five yeah uh, <laughs> nice but you know I and I've talked to a lot of guys that you know senior level you know NCOs and officers in the in the regiment and it's it's hard to put your finger on it ebbs and flows with personalities but I think a lot of it for me was just being brought up uh from a private through a through a basically a platoon sergeant in the Pacific Northwest um where if you wanted to be a guy that goes hunting and fishing every weekend and and uh is that you know kind of type of guy that's fine but you're going to be a pretty lonely sad bastard at the end of 10 years so you know having Seattle and the Pacific Northwest as the as kind of the the place where my young adulthood was spent. I think a lot of us from that time period and that and that uh, unit are are a little more left leaning than your average than your average airborne ranger from uh, anywhere really. Yeah, but in I, I mean, differences of opinion are obviously just that. But I think the the way that you voice them uh, is really. It's really what's impressive. Um, I mean, even yesterday, you know, I think like you made this post on Facebook that was, uh, you know, basically telling people, hey, like September 11th isn't about your time in the military, you know. What? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> Veterans Day is coming. Like, I'll have you know months. that when, when, when I but, tell my tale of service, I always started out with there I was. On September 11th, 2001, my life was changed forever. No, but I think it, it speaks to looking at it from like a, a selfless point of view, right? Like what is the meaning of this situation? Not in in res, like respect to how it fits me, but, yeah. you know, what should we be doing? How should we be thinking about this day? Um, or, you know, whatever the situation is in a way that really, really focuses on kind of a, a, like a deeper thought process. So. Anyway, um, not one hundred percent sure exactly where I'm going with this, but yeah, no, I no. I mean, I feel like that's the the point you're making is that that Jake's capable of of addressing something that we all see. I mean, like every year we see Veterans Day roll around or whatever, or you know Memorial Day, and people misconstrue that holiday. Or and you know then there's always the well wishing people that jump in and are like, this isn't about you. This is about dot dot dot. But I think that like. When it comes to September 11th, I think there's a good point in that whole discussion was that initially Jericho's so to give you to give you more situational awareness on that Jericho post, it started when Jericho's memorial on Facebook of September 11th was simply a satellite imagery photo that he posted showing downtown Manhattan after the plane struck. It was like just kind of like a plume of smoke over Manhattan. And, like, that was all. He didn't say anything. But then, over the course of, like, the next 12 <laughs> hours, seeing a bunch of, like, the Hollywood celebrity me, me, me type 
vet community posting a lot of like pictures of them in like 2004, 2005, 2006 or later in combat looking, you know, fucking battle GQ. I think that that eventually starts to rub you the wrong way. Yeah. And it wasn't like, hey, it's not like Jake getting on there and being like, hey, man, you know what? This isn't about you. Fuck you guys. This is more about like, hey, you all need a fucking headspace and timing check. Like you guys are way out of spec. And you need to understand that what what we see September 11th, like the iconic image for me, and I can't speak for Jake, but is the picture of, you know, the falling, the falling man, that, that photograph where it's like, hey, you know, this was a horrible situation, which had a high loss of life. Uh, I wrote that article on gun, you know, fear-based marketing in the tactical industry. And during that time, when I'm looking at the breakout of like terrorist attacks in the U.S., the reason that the U.S. is even comparable to Europe at all is because of the 2,000 casualties that happened in 2001. Like if you otherwise, if you look at it, I mean, we've had like, you know, 200 or 300 quote unquote yeah. terrorist deaths, mostly tied to like mass shootings yeah. um, in the U.S. But those 2,000 deaths, I mean, they left a mark on a lot of people, um, more more so than service people, uh, like like military service, first responders, um, and, you know, the residents of New York City and their family members that were you know, affected by that. Yeah. And, and it, you know, when I make when I make those little pee-pee spank posts, I, I, I try to remember, like, one of the good lessons I, I learned from, uh, I don't even remember who said it, but we're all just a product of our experiences or lack thereof. And, uh, you know, I've lived in New York City for, like, four and a half years. And uh, a lot of guys have never been there. And they, they you know, we never forget, but they, they've kind of forgotten. And if, if you ask me why I served or why I deployed, it's not because of 9-11. Had not. I mean, I was already in the army on nine eleven. Was it because but you were still. a low grade sociopath? That yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Welcome I to just, the club. I just checked the schedule for the next day, and a, a bunch of times it said we were deploying, so I I just follow what was on the board. But uh, yeah, I, I I try to remember that that for for most things that, that guys are, you know, exactly what I said. They're products of their experiences or lack thereof. And some guys, you know, I I have people tell me all the time like man, I really appreciate you saying that or, or posting this or whatever because I never thought of it from that, that direction. You know? And then there's a lot of guys who get, who get butthurt at me and call me a self-righteous asshole. And, which, you know, you, which you are, once, that's okay. Yeah, once, once you lose the argument, that's when I become a self-righteous <laughs> asshole. But I was just a, a normal guy before that, before I, you realized you were fucking stupid. So. <laughs> I don't think there's anything self-righteous about it. I mean, he's on that high horse, bro. Yeah, he's talking down to me. Sit in your tower. So like, why Aaron, am I in a tower? Aaron says smart? this as a guy who's never been to basic training. Where when like, an, God forbid that we actually got into basic training stories. But my fondest memory of time in the military is going back to basic around a bunch of guys that like may or may not have skated through their GED evaluation by the skin of their teeth. Uh, one kid who. His ASVAB score was very low, and he used to wet the bed every night. Yes. Yeah, it was a very nice kid who, like, wasn't capable of stringing a sentence together in spoken word, <laughs> much less written. And you sit there, and you're with these guys where, like, you're given performance tasks, and everybody's supposed to meet a standard in the military. And as soon as they realize that you're capable of performing that task more easily than they are, they're like, don't you fucking talk down to me. We're the same person. And I'm like... <laughs> Well, yeah, 
uh, admit uh, understood. But the military, that that culture within the military, like everybody feels like they're equals based on rank or responsibility, right? So a lot of the time, if you're if you're having, I I don't think it's a military specific problem. I think it's a problem in America where if you disagree with someone and you're making a point that exceeds someone's mental bandwidth, they're immediately going back to like, you don't have to talk down to me. I'm an adult, you know? And you're like, Oh, this conversation's going downhill fast. All the time. All the time. Like, don't talk down to me, Jericho. Yeah. 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 Think you're better than me. (laughs) This, this (laughs) podcast is about to digress into like one large scale physical altercation. (laughs) Right. No, but what's great is that I mean you're actually almost never directly speaking to one person. Even even alluding to one person, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I always tell Doug cuz he's kind of my uh <laughs> he's my like reality check. Sometimes I listen to him, sometimes I don't, but uh oh yeah. I always tell him that I don't I don't react to instances, I react to trends or patterns. And that's kind of how I I spent my time as a leader in the army as well. I don't I didn't judge guys if they stepped on their dick one time, you know, but if they do it a few times, then there's a problem. And that's, that's kind of how I, I do things within the, the my, softly my community. My eyes were too. bad first sergeant. I couldn't see the wedding band suntan line. <laughs> Not your fault, Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> I only had two beers. <laughs> no, man, but I think it's important. You know, you're, you're providing a valuable social service to, uh, to the social media community. You know? I'm putting that on my resume. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, when it comes to bridging the military civilian gap, Jake can tell people very effectively that he's he's managed large large groups of contentious people who have various and varying opinions on a variety of issues. He effectively did it. How do we quantify that? Like six thousand people? Like I don't know. You've led six thousand people in internet combat. resulting in a 99 percent success rate when it comes to administering uh, punitive (laughs) yeah sometimes non-punitive no but speaking of bridging that gap i mean let's you recently did retire from the military right and i mean you know what what has the transition been like for you so far um no, please don't ask him that. He just spent well, how many months in Europe doing well, nothing? I know. I mean, <laughs> I was doing stuff, tra- <laughs> traveling, and being a misanthrope. I ate and drank, and I read a couple books. Got to live vicariously through travel pictures. <laughs> yeah, you know, for my transition, I've told a lot of guys. I feel, I mean, I shouldn't feel bad because I I set it up that way on purpose, but I, I set myself up pretty well in in that I, you know, I I got the exact kind of sunset tour or twilight tour whatever they call it in the navy uh the last the last job before i retired was the exact one i wanted and you know i was a senior military science instructor at a college and it was me and four other green suitors you know four other army guys and it was basically like being a civilian except that i had a really steady paycheck and uh and and people that had to do what i told them um rather than being a civilian so my transition has been pretty damn easy, um, especially, you know, being in New York City. I, you know, kind of uh, strategically picked that location due to the, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. It's the center of the world in New York City. So, um, yeah, but they're salsa shit. They're what? They're salsa. Oh, man. Shit. No good Mexican. There's <laughs> no New good York Mexican City. food. New York City. Get a rope. It's not 
That's not a uh, falsehood. There is no good Mexican food in New York City. Oh, man, dude. Jake's house is going to get started. It's, they're going to start egging right. it now. Like every Mexican restaurant in New York City is going to be like, where does this Jericho live? Uh, they don't care. They don't care. People, they, they don't know any better. We're not inviting you to their quinceanera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, the transition for me has, um, it's, it's kind of been a not trying to, find something to do it's trying to pick something to do if that makes sense the, yeah uh, it's the a good spot to be in yeah it's it's a great spot to be in and you know uh the other thing about new york city going back to 9 11 is that everybody there still if they're if they're a, a born and raised new yorker which most of the uh pretty successful people there are i mean they didn't forget they're, they're touched by 9 11 in some way shape or form um and and they'll do whatever they can for you you know um as long as you're a competent guy you can't just you can't come in there with you know chewing on a piece of straw hanging out of your mouth and be like, oh, well, let me get a job at your at your hedge fund, man." But they'll they'll work with you and how do we get you how, how do we go about doing that? I I would like to petition for a job at a hedge fund <laughs> chewing on a straw. I, I think that New Yorkers are actually very friendly people. They just you know they don't have patience for bullshit, right? Yeah, so, I've argumentativeness should not be confused with a lack of friendliness. That's like, 100%. Fuck, fuck you, guy. No, fuck you. Hey, this guy's all right. Buy him a drink. Uh, hey, man. Spe- <laughs> speaking as a Jew, <laughs> that is a seminal part of our culture. New like, York is not, um, it's not unfriendly. It's in a hurry. It, it's it's the most, people really get put, pissed off at inefficiency. We're right. going to do this hour-long yeah. podcast in 20 minutes because Jericho's <laughs> got places to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck you guys, I'm out. Yeah, yeah I mean, I... Whenever I come down here, I have to, you know, remind myself. Like I, on the drive down, I stopped to get some breakfast, and I stood at the uh, at the host counter for like three or four minutes, and like, what the fuck is going on here? Probably, and come, I left, come. and then I got in my car. I was like, man, I'm not in New York. That things in the, in the south, south move only a bit only slower. compounded by the quote unquote redneck sheriff who blocked the road for him because of a fallen power line. Yeah, he's like I was stuck there for thirty minutes. The text like some redneck sheriff. I was like, oh yeah, yes. <laughs> Welcome to North Carolina yeah. again. Smokey and the bandit fucking dude was out there. I'm like, what's going on up there? Yeah, power line out. Are you fixing it? Never mind. Took yeah. a detour. But I I do think that um the I mean, similar to almost everything that is uh, majestic or visually powerful, you know, pictures cannot do the 9/11 memorial in New York justice. And I think it, I, th- I think it's really important for anyone that can make it to the city or that's in the city to really try and take the time to to go see the memorial. It's, oh yeah, it's amazingly powerful. I was really, really blown away at uh, at how moving, it, like just emotionally stirring, it was. Yeah, um, I mean, when you know, whenever I have family or friends come to visit New York, they all they're all obviously going to go, and uh, when they do, I'm like, all right, here's how you get there. I'll, I'll see you after, because especially if they go to the museum, the museum is when I, I've been there once, and I, I'm never going to go back. And it's intense when man. you go. I felt like I just gotten the shit kicked out of me when have I have you been to the Holocaust museum, or like it's the same. No, I haven't. But I I did. It's on a similar level. Yeah. Yeah. On this on this last trip in in Sarajevo, I went to the uh, the ethnic cleansing museum in Ooh. Sarajevo, and yeah, after I left, I just I was done for the night. I, you know, I had yeah, some man. other plans, and I just I left, and I was like, yep, not doing that. Well, I've never been to a museum that affected me like that. And like when we were in Israel, and we get into the Holocaust, like the the actual like Holocaust museum, not the U.S. one, and they've got like this whole like like 
Ashkenazi Jews dancing, like a bunch of like celebratory music videos and stuff up on the walls and the way that the architecture of the building set up, like the further you go down the history of the, like the, you know, the German uh, oppression, Holocaust and everything, like the further you get towards the exit door and towards the list of names, like the less you see the people dancing. And at the end, as you're leaving, you look back and it's just like a black past, like there's no history. And I was like, holy cow, like they built this whole building around this idea of you know an emotional experience that elicits a response so like i can only imagine what like the 9-11 because it's it's recent it's affected yeah. all of us within our actual lives yeah yeah, yeah. And, and then they they have recordings like nine one one calls and and phone calls of all these you know people calling in during it um and then for me the thing that really crushed me about that museum and, and like you were talking about pictures of of actual 9-11 the ones that really get me are like the people going home from work mainly like the middle-aged women like as i just imagine i thought back to my being a kid my mom worked at a bank you know so i could just see my mom being working down there somewhere coming home crying covered in dust you know from that day not even not even being a casualty but just how it yeah. affects people you know, that's that's what really yeah, gets man, me. Firsthand witnessing that kind of you know catastrophe and tragedy. Yeah, yeah. That's you look at the stats of like the casualty stuff, which are terrible. But I look at all the people who survived that and how it affected their lives. That's that's what kind of makes me a little visceral about 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 that day. And then also, you know, with the the thing I said about the first responders and stuff, it, and what a lot of people don't remember. Uh, there's there's guys in hospital beds right now. You know beat cops from New York that spent months down there breathing in carcinogenic fumes and dudes who got and, like cancer, mesothelioma. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, yeah. it's, it's like the agent orange for New York city first responders. Yeah, man. I feel like those guys have been kind of forgotten by our country totally. as well. Yeah. You know, they weren't, they weren't casualties on September 11th. You know, they weren't casualties from like from a war zone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're they're dying like slow, painful deaths. Yeah, and they're really just kind of off the radar. And and to be honest, I mean, without getting too political, like we haven't really done anything to help those guys out. No. Every, In fact, if anything, we've done the opposite, right? Yeah, everything everything that's pretty much done for those guys is grassroots. It's, it's grown from within the NYPD or the FDNY. It's not everybody else going in to help. Like there were know. there were programs initially, I know, for the families, but I feel like after after the initial waving of the flag and everybody kind of like coming together it definitely faded yeah i mean a lot of the funding for the first responders you know in the recent you know last two three four five years some you know those bills have either not gone through or been totally stonewalled um or just kind of dropped altogether and yeah i think you know those guys and their families are they're they're kind of they're really paying the price um and it's definitely it's it's another tragedy, you know. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's like a it's a squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of thing. Like you look, I'd like to to know how much you know. Certain certain people in the community's foundations have in their in their bank account versus the actual effects <laughs> that they've had. You know how much this pod, how much this money podcast does, is about to go down that small c communist route in a hurry <laughs> i mean let's raid the rich people's houses and give all their money to the people who need well, it you know let's let's <laughs> how many have you ever heard of a, a third infantry division uh association charity 
I mean, and there's a bunch of those kids that have been whacked and, and are sitting in wheelchairs right now, but no one gives a shit because there's no, there's no TV show about them. You know, there's not seven movies about them. Um, but they, they paid way bigger, way bigger price. I mean, if you're the family of, of somebody who's fallen, obviously it's, it's, it's a huge price for you, but I think our, our country like goes after what's sexy and they, you know, and we like the community you don't come from, we're, we're lucky that, that, yeah. you know, we have those cool catchphrases that are attached to the names of our units that, that get people to be like, oh yeah, these guys are the greatest, but well, you know, and I think that the, the level of maturity too, that is exhibited within our community. I mean, typically we certainly not a Ranger Battalion, <laughs> but as you, you spend a lot of time in Ranger Battalion. So you have seen, I mean, you grew up there and grew into an adult there mm-hmm. so like it's funny when i talk to people that know you they like remember jake as private oh, yeah. men, and they also are like laughing like oh look you know he made it this this high up but i know that like a lot of the organizations that we have that are meant to take care of guys from our community are the kind of places where people are encouraged to ask for help and, you know, they tell you like, hey, you're not weak because you're saying like, I'm struggling financially or my family's struggling. Like, you know, you need to get into adjustment therapy. You need to, you know, ask somebody and go, hey, man, we handled money poorly over the last few months or there was a divorce or, you know, like an, a medical emergency that cost me more money than my health care was going to provide for. Who do I talk to? And somebody somewhere is like, hey, there is a organization for that, <laughs> you know, and we'll help yeah. you because, you know. In addition to there being support, we're willing to ask for it. And I think a lot of the time, um, especially when we talked about like reintegration into civilian population, the, the military, I, I make this parallel a lot of the time, and I, I don't know how well it sits with everyone, but <laughs> uh, the military is a total institution. The only thing that's comparable to it in American society is prison because yeah. it's the only place where you're fully integrated into a culture that isn't the same as what you would have if you were back home, right? So guys get out of this total institution and go back to their hometown where there really are very low portion of people that have lived the same life experience they have, and they don't know who to ask for help for them. They don't – I mean, the reason that there aren't organizations to help that third ID kid is because typically when guys get discharged from third ID, they don't have this sense of identity that like, for the rest of my life, I'm going to tell you about what it was like during those three years when I was at third ID and sang dog face soldier every morning yeah. while I re- went for a run. Cause those guys are like, man, it wasn't the best experience of my life. I'd like to move on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, and kind of in the institutional, the institutionalized thing that, and looking at when we talk about transition, one thing that's kind of hard for me uh, in a, in a transition is, is getting rid of that, that institute kind of like the, uh, the prison kind of institutionalized um, in that as soon as I meet someone, I'm sizing them up and seeing if they are a worthwhile member of my group. Get a lunch tray, hit and, them in the face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, you're no good to me. I'm just going to beat your ass and take your stuff. Yeah. yeah. That makes and, me and, look cooler with all the other guys that I do want to hang out with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and it's hard to get used to the idea that not everybody is going to be part of your group even if you are working in and around them. Um, and or taking, that not t- everybody's trying to steal your lunch money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that not everybody's sizing me up as part of the group as well. Give me your stamps. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that 
for me, that's and it it hasn't really affected anything except for that I've probably written off some people that would have been okay friends. You know, I can be I can be friends or or colleagues with someone that I wouldn't live through the zombie apocalypse with, and it's okay. I think that's that's the biggest thing I'm trying to get through. You still I feel like Jake's really staring at me while he's saying this right now. <laughs> are you still? <laughs> are you? St- I mean. I find that uh, my wife points out to me all the time that, like, with people I don't know, like, this, and this is, I think, part of me learning to function in both a total institution as a guard guy now, and which isn't actually a total institution. <laughs> Let me correct that. As, it's as like, like being on work release yeah, in prison. Yeah, a partial institution yeah. and also being in the civilian sector is that, like, uh, there are people that I don't know well and I, I don't particularly like at all that I'm willing to go out of my way to do nice things for, take time to like get to know or work with because I just don't know them. They're like a big question mark to me, but that like people I know, especially guys that I served with, I'm like the, the harshest critic for those dudes. I'm like, Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you this guy and my wife's like, dude, you, you like him. You guys have been friends for a decade. I'm like, yeah, fuck him. <laughs> he is like sacrificed. He's compromised everything he believes in. That guy yeah. is dead to me. Or, you know, or even my wife, I'll be like, you know, where did you put this thing? She's like, why are you so like, it's yeah. not me. You said it over there in the corner. I'm like, ah, you're right. <laughs> I have a, I have a 24 hour rule when it comes to, you know, if, if I don't, if I don't get an email back or, or a text back or, Phone call within like twenty four. I'm like, fuck that guy. Yeah, like, he's he, he's, he's dead. sold out. I, I buried him in the graveyard of my soul. <laughs> sold out. He's all talk. Whatever. Not a brother to me. Yeah. Um. But the other the other side of that that coin is for me is and the social media thing. It kind of brings the light. Is you know what? Just because I was in a unit with you and we had the same job ten years ago doesn't mean you're not a piece of shit. Um. There's a lot of guys that have. You know, maybe they were hiding it well when they were there. One but, team, one fight, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it doesn't earn you a place in, in, in my group just because we had the same job 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, no one's beyond reproach, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. I feel like all relationships, like, I, so it's actually funny. One of Brian and I, like, early on in my relationship with Brian, a guy that we were both friends with who we've talked about previously Told, an, an unreleased podcast. Yeah, an unreleased podcast. <laughs> uh, he told me that if I wanted to be a functional member of of society or like any group, that I had to constantly be asking what I brought to the table and that other people in my group, like no one came into a group bringing nothing. That there's like this, this social exchange type theory where like, hey, I'm taking something from you, but you're also taking something from me. And I think that it's, it's very much more apparent for us out of a soft community. Like, hey, what have you done for me lately? It's also why we tend to start digging into people's backgrounds as well. Because when a guy proves himself to be a little useless to us currently, we start to question if he was useless yeah. 10 years ago too. And then you find out the dude was like actually an operations officer not a team guy and that he, you know, he he'd never deployed. And then he spent four years on like a recreational, like job tasking in the military. And you're like, man, no wonder that guy's such a useless bump on a log. Now he was a useless bump on a log back then too. Right. Yeah. And you're like, it makes sense to me, but it's weird because I think a lot of people trade on the past instead of acting currently and in, in the now. And they're like, you know, I did this thing. 10 years ago and you're like 
well, you only, the only reason you appeal to what you did 10 years ago is because you can't appeal to what you did for me today. Right? Like, well, what yeah. did you do? Like, let me go back and talk to your friends from 10 years ago. Oh, you, you mean you didn't have anything to talk about back then either? No yeah, wonder you, we're talking about 10 years ago. You're only as good as your next operation, yeah. not yep. your last one. Interesting. So speaking of next operations, um, Jake, can you tell us a little bit about what you've gotten to? And I guess even before maybe you were you were fully out of the military, you started to spend some time consulting. Um, and it sounds like that that is ended up with like a pretty cool project. Yeah. Um, so a buddy of mine, Mike Baumgarten, and uh, his buddy Ray Mendoza. Mike was a 175 Ranger with me. Ray was a, a SEAL. Ray, Ray was actually a, a tech advisor um, when he was still in the Navy uh, for what's the movie that they made with the active duty guys? Act of Valor. Act of Valor. Yeah. He the was the greatest piece of like <laughs> of pro American propaganda since the nineteen forties war film. No, so yeah, that uh, you're, you're missing like the all the Rocky movies and shit, man. Like Rocky <laughs> Four oh, is yeah. probably the greatest piece of American like propaganda. Cold War propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I but seriously, I, like, under, I understand what you're saying. Do you remember all the old movies where the heroes died and like yeah, you left feeling just, like the sacrifice of Americans in I'm you know saying, wherever it was Rocky like, Four's pedestal is is like. Everest high, and it's going to take a lot to knock that off, in my opinion. Red Dawn's pretty I'm good. Really, Red Dawn's pretty awesome too. Well. I'm really sad, though, that I've had to concede that a Rocky film is as good of a piece of propaganda as as the what were the Sombrero Brothers? What was the name the of the guys? Brothers, the Burrito Brothers. Yeah, they're was the ones. It? No, was that I who think it did? Was. Yeah, the ones that did the Act of Valor. I think so. That was dude. They did a great job, though. I mean, people are like, I don't know, the movie was stupid. I'm like, uh, for what that movie was, like, it was an excellent display of SEAL teams' capabilities. They used active duty SEALs to appeal to an audience and get a, like a broader base. And to be honest, for a bunch of like non actors, they did a great job telling a story. It wasn't yeah. terrible. I've I watch had, it. I've actually never seen it. Oh, I, but, do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I watch it every time I'm in the mood to masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ray Ray was on that. He kind of got the bug. Um, did uh, he got out and did a bunch of other tech advising on some pretty big stuff. He uh, then uh, brought in Mike Baumgarten, a guy that I was Rangers with, and uh, they produced a couple shows. They did uh, Live to Tell, which is now called uh, The Warfighters, which is on the History Channel. It's really good. Um, and then they did, uh, the selection as well. And, uh, as I was transitioning out, me and me and Mike were pretty good buddies and he, he had an opportunity that got thrown to him, uh, to tech advise on this, uh, national geographic series called, uh, live to tell or not live to tell. I just said that. I'm sorry. Uh, called the long road home. Uh, it's about a group of guys from uh, first cav in, uh, Sadr city in Iraq in 2004. Um, right after Mission Accomplished was declared. Um, but it's uh, based off a book by Martha Raddatz, um, eight-episode series. Um, take advice on that. Um, and from there, I, I didn't have any plans of, of doing it after. I just kind of did it because it was an opportunity to go and see what it was like. Um, and it kind of like I guess it did for Ray. Uh, it gave me the bug. I really, really enjoyed uh tech advising and not because the pay was so good right 
That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's as as we sit here and he talks about it, he's desperately clutching his screen actors guild uh pen. Film that, actors guild. Oh, is, is it is it the film actors guild? Hey, whatever, man. <clears throat> and, yeah. No, I mean I brag about that, brag about your joke. Bra- brag about your super expensive pen, bro. <laughs> yeah. I, and they actually don't so I, I, I got into SAG uh last week due to I mean the people uh the people that made uh the long road home the the uh, Brian, the show Brian's the showrunner and the pen. executive producers and stuff, <laughs> um, they were great people. Um, they they really really cared about telling the story well. They listened to uh, all of my feedback and Mike's feedback. Um, they had a few guys who were actually there on the day, and they they were really good. But uh, in addition, I mean, they took care of me. They gave me a, a enough of a role in the in the fe- in the uh, series that I was able to get into SAG, um, and now. You know, I just went and paid my initiation fees last week, so I'm sitting here with a three thousand dollar pen. That Congratulations, I, man! That I actually stole. I didn't. I didn't. They don't give it to you, uh, <laughs> but they make you work for it. Yeah, exactly. So um, they make you pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> so now me and uh, that and uh, that show uh, airs November seventh. By the way, um, for anybody that wants to watch it, where where does it air? National Geographic. All right. Um, it's you want to t- tell us more about the sh- the series? Yeah, yeah it's it, it goes from uh from them basically pre deployment shows a lot of the the home front stuff with the wives and and the so kids. a lot of fighting. Yeah, <laughs> pre every deployment, it's like <laughs> like a month out. My wife's like, "You're a terrible person, and I hate you, and I want to make as much awful space between us as possible yeah. before you're gone for six months to a year." Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's fair. You know, I. I've seen parts of it. I've seen trailers and I've seen cuts, but I wasn't there for post production, so I haven't seen it. Um, but I have seen a lot of the cuts from it, and it's it's going to be pretty good. I mean, if nothing else, it's it's pretty realistic, um, which is because of me. No big deal, and right. and, and Mike. <laughs> uh, but they they did not spare any expense. It was it was the largest set in North America. Um, they basically took the Mount City on Fort Hood, and brought in an army of contractors that came in and made it look exactly like Sodder City. It's a pretty good amount well, city already anyway. So. Yeah, and w- when I walked through it like at night, I was like, holy shit. I mean, I wasn't getting flashbacks or anything, but it looked exactly the same. Um, and, you know, they during uh, before the production started, they, they got feedback from us and the, the veterans of the day and little things here and there, you know, like what kind of trash was on the street, what the puddles looked like, um, what the signs looked like. Everything was down to the to the gnat's ass. It was like really accurate. That's awesome that yeah. they had that much attention to detail. Yeah, it was it was good and, and uniforms. You know, everything was 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 looked at. Um, mainly by Mike. He was there a lot more for the the pre production than I was. But uh, and and they also gave us the actors for like three weeks to put them through a uh, air quotes boot camp. That, How'd that go? It was good. Um, you know. The actors came in, uh, and they expect they were all nervous, expecting us to put them through like a, you know, a, a Dale Die like Saving Private Ryan type boot camp where we made them do push-ups and stuff. But you know, we walked in kind of with the uh, the SF guy mentality of like, we have you for three weeks. We're not going to spend it making you nervous so you don't retain anything. Um, and and it was it was just my man. Yeah, it was just See, people <laughs> learning stuff like hey. Limited time. Let's not waste it on bullshit. Yeah, I mean, that was a product, and it, part of the reason I think Mike brought me in is that I 
through being an ROTC instructor, realized that I wasn't, there's a difference between selecting people and training people. You know, when I worked at RIP or now RASP, uh, it was about selecting people, not really training them. Um, and I think a lot of Rangers lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the difference? Yeah, so, <laughs> so when I worked at RIP, I had this little... Uh, right, this, so first of all, like 25% of the people on this podcast are going to know what RIP is. Other oh. people are going to be like, it's uh, rest in peace, your panties, because Jericho's so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> RIP was, uh, back when it was hard, that was uh, RASP, which stood for Regimental Indoctrination Program. Back when it was hard. I was in the Army at that point. <laughs> it was uh, the most rigorous week of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the... A lot of people think it's Ranger, but it's Regimental Indoctrination Program. Um, and then it's now RASP, the RASP-1 <clears throat> Regimental Assessment and Selection Program. So, yeah, the difference is, and even RASP now has changed a lot from what RIP was when I worked there. When I worked there, it was three weeks long, and our, our motto was attrition is my mission because we just tried to annihilate dudes to see who that stuck explains, it out to the end. That explains so much. <laughs> Yeah, funny story. They so uh, kind of an unofficial thing that we did when I worked there was uh, the the last written test that the uh, the students had was a ranger history test, and we told them to flip the page over and whoever the biggest asshole cadre of the cycle was, write their yes. name, and whoever the biggest cupcake was, write their name. Well, I, I only worked down there for about a year. I I really didn't like it, um, but I was there for eleven classes. And I took asshole ten of eleven times. The my man. The uh, I gotta say, almost everyone I've met that has known you from the past is like, "Fuck, Jake is that the guy's scariest a, guy I've ever met." Such in my an life. asshole. <laughs> you know what? Not though? an asshole. Everyone's. Oh, I hear that a lot. <laughs> you know what though? Uh, the guy who got cupcake pretty often will remain nameless. But I considered that guy kind of a shitbag. Like. Um, God guys, it. guys forget where they come from. You know, they, they'll, when they're a squad leader in battalion, they'll, they'll bitch about guys coming there that suck, but then they'll, they'll make fun of me for being a gigantic asshole to students when my job is to make sure that the only the best make it through. Um, so did you receive, uh, like an RCOM or an MSM from the psyops and civil affairs battalions that you staffed with all of your rip washouts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I almost, I almost got fired a couple times by the commandant for hazing, but, uh, that was it's about it. It's not called hazing. It's <laughs> called, it's called, uh, selecting. You were exactly. about to tell us the difference between training and selecting. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in, in selecting in that environment, so we were, we were, selecting skill level ones or e1s three fours right so not a lot to measure them by other than just their intestinal fortitude and and Guts. physical aptitude which after the first few days it's uh you have to look at we're assessing and selecting skill level ones it's different than assessing and selecting ncos and officers um so but i think there's a lot of guys in in the ranger regiment uh that don't get the difference um, and it's because they're a product of how they were brought up, you know, just, uh, do you think that we all kind of forget over time where we came? I mean, a lot of guys forget where they came from. It's like you run, at least in SF, I run to a lot of like senior E7s that have a real block about who they were when they were E4s. Oh yeah. Like they're like, when I came into the regiment, I could do this and this and this. And you're like, man, I would love to see 
the like historical records of your PT tests and your scores on on evaluative tests Absolutely. academically because as someone who taught at SWIC for three years, like at the Charlie Committee, like there are a lot of really high performing NCOs that didn't do well <laughs> in our classes. And they that was their wake up call. They realized yeah. like, hey, man, if I'm going to be good at this job, I have to apply myself more. And I, I think it, it's also that we yeah, that I mean, you look at me, I, one of my, you know, experiences, I think that shaped me was. I went to battalion. I, I weighed 130 pounds, and I, I could. I played ice hockey as a kid. First time I ran over a mile was in basic training, so I wasn't uh, the Rangers Ranger. You know what I mean? And when I went to my platoon, um, my squad leader was one of the only combat veterans in the in the platoon. It was 1997, so people were like, "You're going to that guy's squad? You're fucked," you know. But you know, the first few times we did PT, I would fall out and and all this, but that dude didn't give up on me, you know. And, uh, my team leader who was just a demon, um, looked like Wolverine, like a Puerto Rican Wolverine. Um, those dudes didn't give up on me because there's, they understood that I had been through the attrition phase and it was time to train me. And that if, if you get someone and, and to your squad and, you know, you, you are release them for standards, that's your fault because the yeah. regiment has deemed me worthy of being a member of the organization so if i go to the squad a squad or platoon and then i get released for anything other than you know if i go out and get a dui or whatever then then i get released that's let's on me not, let's not even talk about that but it's yeah not, it's not a relievable offense <laughs> <laughs> that's but, leadership uh, cowardice summer release it makes, <laughs> makes a good a soft unit good but uh <laughs> moral failings <laughs> bleh. it's the uh it's the nds that need to get you kicked out of the unit yeah yeah so uh you know, I, I learned early on that, that that you, if someone if if they're in your element, it's it's your responsibility to train them. Um, whether that's you as a team leader with a with a new private or a, a platoon sergeant with a new platoon leader, or you know a first sergeant with a company commander, it's it's your job. And if if they fail, that's that's your failure. Um, so you know, with that, um, training people is also very different. Um, and I learned that uh, when I left the regiment and went to work at ROTC and I was teaching college cadets or college kids, you know, how to be future officers and, and expectation management and realizing what the end state of that person is. Um, so with that, when I was training people for this show, when me and Mike were training them, we're training, we're not training them to go to a platoon and, and go to Iraq. We're training them to get on screen and know how to move and aim and shoot like they know what they're doing um, to basically make them look right. Yeah, walk, look, talk. Look realistic, right? Right. Walk, talk, shoot, move, uh, everything like a guy from First Cav in 2004 would do. Um, and, and you know, that was, that was a lot of Mike and Ray kind of giving me some expectation management as I went into it. Um, in you're there to make them look good, not to make them a member of your squad. Um, which is a big difference. Um, and, and a lot of the things are going to have crossover, you know, sure. uh, repetition, you know, attention to detail, those types of things. Um, but it was good. I, I went in, I expected, um, cause there, there were some pretty big name guys, uh, and I expected some attitude and stuff like that. These guys were awesome. Um, they absolutely wanted to do it right. And I think, 
you know, once I stood back and looked, I was like, these guys are very successful actors and they recognize that I'm going to make it so that they look good on screen. Yeah. And they're masters of their craft and ma- being a master of your craft is looking good on camera. So they're going to listen. Um, and they worked their asses off and uh, just just really good dudes. I mean, I think it, it, in any job you do, if for me, if somebody wants to do a good job, that's that's kind of my mark of if they're a good dude or not. And these guys all absolutely wanted to do a good job. And they were also really passionate. I mean, they were playing actual people, you know, and they took that very, very seriously. It wasn't it wasn't a a fictional character that they were playing and they really understood that and they they took it really seriously and <clears throat> i mean if anything we had to pull the reins back on them if we had them doing reps of you know just moving down the street uh tactically clearing some rooms and stuff but they wanted to do it all day long we we're in we we're in texas you know at the beginning of summer it was hot and we had to kind of protect them from themselves a little bit and you know if if one of them was a heat casualty or got sunburned. You know, the production people would get mad at us. So it's the like, director uh, would get mad at us. It's like all the soft guys that go to do consulting for sports teams. And uh, the, like, you know, prize pitcher gets a shoulder injury from log PT. It's like <laughs> suddenly your job is is yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> hey, don't hire Jake again. Yeah. He smoked the crap out of our guys. Hey, yeah. uh, a I'm, picture of me came out of the overhead squatting one of the uh, actors and yes. the uh, executive director got pissed at me. Dude, what what high school was it that uh, you know that kid just got killed at doing log PT? No, I didn't. I and, hadn't read about that. Yeah, it's kind of you know going back to what you were saying. You know, what's the purpose, right? And this this, yeah. this high school football coach had oh, yeah. these football squads doing log PT with a four hundred pound log, and this log rolled and fucking killed this kid. Like <clears throat> you know, crushed his head. I don't and, even want to talk about what training that guy might have received beforehand to lead him to believe a 400 pound log is a good thing no, i don't think i mean i don't think he had any military experience that's not it, what i was indicating but it's well, all good yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i will say this you know they probably would have been wise to give him a block of instruction on risk assessment as well but oh, i mean yeah. not to sound like a total pain. second lieutenant doug everybody <laughs> right? no but i think going to what jake was saying you know one of the signs of uh of a really i think a true professional is the fact that you can subvert your ego for you know the team or the task at hand right so to have an actor come in that really is a professional and and looking to do the best job possible and not not act like a prima donna i mean that's that that may be what we're expecting from you know the tmz type stuff that we're exposed to all the time but right i would i would hope that most of the guys are out there actually aren't like that yeah i i was like i said i was very pleasantly surprised at at how uh receptive they were um you know and and they weren't it's not like they were scared or anything that they just really cared and they trusted us you know um, with with giving them the giving them the the real deal and that that we were going to make them better um How was yep. it working with the producers? I mean, those guys have you know time constraints and budget constraints, et cetera. Yeah, were there were there situations where you guys kind of knocked heads or you know had to kind of compromise on things that you didn't? <laughs> this is a sore subject for me as well. It's 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 <laughs> it's not a sore subject for me. I mean, there's so, and I've I've had a few guys ask me after the fact, like, "Hey, I would like to get into tech advising and stuff." I'm like, oh, "Cool, man." It's 
you can't be emotional about it. Um, you have to understand that there are things that are not going to be realistic. But because it's a show, it's it's there to entertain people. And if, if the things that you can give a little for are going to help tell these guys' story better, then then you have to trust the director and the and the producer to to know what a good story looks like. And that's a win in, in the long run, right? Right, right. So Rider, know, the writers play a lot into that as well. It's yeah. very crucial. Yeah, so just giving a little for the sake of the story. Can you give us an example? Yeah, I mean, uh, one one example, one one day that I, I almost got a little emotional, but uh, a guy just, you know, uh, taking a hit from a grenade, like a frag. Right, we those of us who have seen a, a frag go off, especially a a booger eater frag, they're not that impressive. But it, we all know, you know, in Hollywood, a grenade is <laughs> it's a significant emotional event. Lots of fire and booms and guys getting thrown six feet into the air. Um, so one of my things was that, and it's it's just that that grenade going off and this guy getting blown up by it was basically the, you know, the final act of a certain episode. Right. Right. So that has to, ha- that has to resonate with people for a whole nother week before the next episode comes out. It has to be, it has to be a significant emotional event. Right. So if you make it look absolutely real, it's just going to be like, Poof. and, and the people at home that aren't, you know, guys experienced in grenades are going to be like, uh, that was no big deal. The Michael Bay has ruined realistic combat. Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> no, I, mean, I think it's just understanding that a lot of those events are bigger than the are bigger than the event. Yep. Right. They're, they're just a part the of the moment story. that they exist in. Right. Right. The moment has to be uh, emphasized and you have to emphasize it with special effects or, or, you know, the reaction from an actor or whatever. So, once I kind of got that down, there there was never really a, a time when, and, and the, for me, the director, there there were two directors on the show. Both of them, both of them are great. They they would ask me for in, input more often than I would have to step in and say, "Hey, this is this is wrong." That's awesome. Yeah, they they did a, a pretty good job. They they've worked on some pretty big stuff, um, war stuff, and and that. So they kind of they kind of knew the deal. Cool. So this is something you think you're going to be doing in the future again? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, now that, now that you joined the guild. Yeah, now that I'm in the union, I, I should be able to get some. But yeah, me, me and Mike and uh, Ray and then our other, we have one more partner who's our, our token civilian who's uh, named Ryan. And <clears throat> we're, we have a lot of irons in the fire um, trying to make some stuff ourselves uh, as well as, you know, getting those tech advising jobs as they pop up. Um, there's a couple of, of projects that are in the mix coming out that I really want to work on. Um, and yeah, it's, it, but it's, it's Hollywood. You gotta, uh, Ray gave me some advice that about, about 10% of the stuff that you want to happen will even come close to happening and less than that will. So, um, Dude, just like anything else in life, you spend a lot of time pitching ideas, yeah, hoping yeah. that there's somebody out there that wants to work with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I'm, sure Aaron wants to fire me with all the like good idea fairy stuff. Like I, every day, I'm like, "Hey, man, we could do this thing." He's like, "No." The stars have yeah. to align. Yeah. I feel like lately it's actually been the opposite. The uh, the Doug driving to Alaska and that's late a great 70s plan. I'm, I'm still all about that. It's, everybody's like, "Oh, you're going to die." No, I'm not. I'm going to. The only thing that's going <laughs> to suck about that is picking who my co-pilot is because there's like a thousand applicants now. <laughs> hey, man, if you're driving to Alaska. Nobody else wants to go with you. I'm like, dude, I'm glad I've created an order of merit list for this road trip now. I'll only do it if you're riding in a Mini Cooper. Uh, it's going to be a 1978 Camaro, <laughs> and it's going to suck. But uh, I, the word on the street is all of our film crew and Papa Pump himself, Aaron, will be riding in a four-wheel drive Sprinter van behind us. So if you if you want to get along on the party, that's apparently where it is at. I'll just I'll be yeah. along the route with spike strips. Right. Yet to be <laughs> adding those babe. adding those uh, dramatic moments I talked about. Oh right. no, Doug <laughs> spun out of control. Well, so I also I wanted to chat a little bit about this trip you just took. You know, you retired and uh, and kind of pretty much immediately went to Europe for a while, right? Yeah. So um, and you went to some really interesting places. Yeah, too. he went on like a world tour of places used for slasher horror films previously. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So. Kind of the the backstory on that was before I went in the army. My dad, my dad was a career army guy too. He did twenty three years, and before I went in the army after high school, my dad and and the same with my brother. My dad encouraged us both. He's like, you "Should take the summer off and backpack through Europe." And me and my brother were like, "No, I want to go in the army right now." So we did. And then, you know, about ten years into my career, I I started thinking about, man, I should have done that. So, you know, like about the last say like ten years, I've been thinking about you know as soon as i retire i'm going to take the summer or or chunk of time and i'm going to do that trip so yeah i just uh, bought a one-way ticket to uh london and then uh basically when i got to a place i would go online and find a cheap train or flight or bus or whatever and plan my next spot um and i bounced around i hit 18 countries in seven weeks. Um, yes, yeah, it's it pretty cool. Uh, You're active, man, and you hit some places that I think are, I wouldn't say off the radar, but wouldn't necessarily be at the top of people's lists if they were thinking about a European vacation, right? Some of the, the Eastern European countries especially. Yeah. And some of the pictures you sent back from those places were absolutely fantastic, man. Yeah, I... I I mean, we were talking about Rocky IV earlier. Uh, when I was a kid, I was, and, and still to this day, my fi- one of my favorite periods of history is the Cold War and just all the the stuff behind the Iron Curtain. I read lots of like spy books and stuff like that. Just because you worship at the Temple of Russian Weightlifting? <laughs> no, this, is, this was before I got into <laughs> Um No, I grew up, you know, watching Red Dawn, and my dad was in the Army during the Cold War and got brought up thinking the Ruskies are, you know, the enemy. So... Yeah, so like a lot of the places I wanted to hit were this. I've been to Russia before. I went to Russia about a year ago, year and a half ago. Was that for a lifting seminar? Or? Yeah, I went there. Well, it was for a tournament. All right. Uh, Klokov, Dmitry Klokov put on a, a tournament I wanted to go watch, and I just happened to see that he was doing it. And I was like, I wonder what plane tickets cost. And they were pretty damn cheap. So I went through the really, really ridiculous uh, process of getting my Russian visa and, and went there. Uh, for like two weeks that was right in the like the heart of the whole you know u.s russia unpleasantness over ukraine right 
It was a little after. It, it, I went right after the election. Okay. So everybody there was pretty pro-American. They love they love T-Man over there. So they were pretty excited about <laughs> talking to me. Are now referring to him as T-Man? <laughs> <laughs> like, I haven't heard that one before. Or, or T-Boy, whatever you want to call him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... That Jake Denman he doesn't have a respectful bone in his body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'd already been to Russia, so I, I kind of marked that off my list. And so I wanted to go to, you know, all those... Like the former Soviet states, the satellite states, and then, you know, as much of Eastern Europe as I could. But as I was looking, I wanted to spend, you know, between six and eight weeks. And I realized Eastern Europe is, you can get pretty Eastern Europe out pretty quick. So I hit a lot of other places. But yeah, I, and the, the off the beaten path places that you talk about are pretty much my highlights. Um, yeah, what was your, maybe your most surprising, you know, place? Surprising was... Uh, all the former Yugoslavia places, uh, Slovenia, Bosnia, Croatia, uh, Montenegro, those places were awesome. Uh, if I had to pick, you know, a favorite place that I visited and I would recommend to people, you know, those four places. But if you're going to pick one, you know, Slovenia, which I I barely knew that was a country. Uh, yeah. And going there is amazing. Like the... <clears throat> The World War One history of Slovenia, you know, back, it was a uh, contested between Austro-Hungaria and Italy, um, and it was pretty much at a stalemate until we started to make way in the uh, okay, kind of the Western Front, and more Americans and, and Brits and French started to go down to that theater and break that stalemate. Um, a lot of Germans started to go down too, but you know, like almost a million guys died down there, and I'd never even, well, I never even knew that until I went, you know, on this trip, and they still have. They still have trenches in the mountains, and you know it wasn't like the France and Belgium front, where it was like flat open fields with with trenches. It was like mountains, you know, like Alps like mountains with trenches on them. So you can see why there was a stalemate there. But um, I stayed in the town, and the people said it was where Ernest Hemingway lived. Oh well, I don't. Who knows if it was? But it was definitely in that town, this tiny town, where he wrote uh, Farewell to Arms, and. You know, they have, like, pictures of them everywhere and stuff, and that was awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And and those countries are dirt cheap, and people love Americans. Um, Slovenia, I think why it was a little bit better than those other places, it, it didn't see the, uh, when Yugoslavia broke up, in the, you know, in the early 90s, and we saw that the nastiness. Um, Slovenia, Austria kind of had their back, so the Serbs never invaded they had like a 10 day long little tiff a couple hundred guys died and then it was over um <clears throat> but you know croatia saw a good amount of fighting in the beginning when the serbs sieged uh dubrovnik and invaded uh the northeastern part of the country which you drive around in those countries now and there's you know every mile or two you see a marker on the road for some guy that got got whacked there in an ambush or whatever um which is, it's crazy that, that that shit was happening, you know, when I was in eighth grade or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then they were cutting each other up. I My dad was, uh, we we were family friends with, uh, like, uh, I don't even know what did. What do you call the, the lead soprano for an opera? Like, yeah, like when you have a, when you have an opera and, like, whatever the, the lead vocalist is, for the um, 
previously Yugoslavian um like a state opera company. Uh, yeah, state opera company. They came to the house and uh, her husband was like in the revolution. It's like they were I believe they were Croatian. Mm-hmm. But there was like the whole like he would like I'd have to leave the room when he showed my dad pictures that he'd taken. Like like, you know, people like grandmothers getting cut in half by chainsaws in the street over oh, like dude. Like terrible arguments like yeah like here's an eight-year-old woman that got murdered with a chainsaw just because she was the wrong ethnicity in, in the wrong neighborhood damn yeah, yeah like they were pretty it was they were it pretty was, brutal it was it was pretty eye-opening i mean it, i found myself when i uh so croatia and all the montenegro all those places they they got hit with it but like bosnia was where yeah the real nasty they lived happened. in bosnia herzegovina but yeah. they were like they were croatians living in the capital or whatever. So yeah, it's like I mean it was weird to me. There there were a few things that really resonated with me about that. One was just how no one knew what was up. Like you talk to people and they're like, Yeah, you would be fighting Cro- Croats one day and then Bosniaks the other day and then Serbs the other day. It kinda depended on what neighborhood you're from, but not really. And then you go and talk to another guy and he's like, Oh well this and that and they they don't even understand it still. Um they they had a saying that you have to look at the entire apple before you take a bite. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. It was, but it they, was don't, weird. they don't know what that means. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like the Jukes and the Calicax on a countrywide level. Like, you know, like we have this like long running hundred year feud over some dude kicking some other dude's dog. Yeah. And like they've all forgotten what the root of the the squabble is about, but they know I hate that dude. I hate him a ton. Forever war, man. What's, what's awesome though, and like the other thing that really resonated with me about bosnia and the people there was that they they don't hold those grudges anymore like most of them um to the person that i talked to um if i would talk to you know like a bosnia like a muslim and i'd be like i'd just gone to you know the ethnic cleansing museum and seen the nasty shit that was done to them and i'm like and and, you know sarajevo is still like 33 percent everybody and they live together fine and i would talk to them i'm like do you not hate Serbs? And they're like, no, I, that was politics and they were tricked into it by their leadership and stuff. And I don't, we don't care. It's not, that they don't care, that, but they would say, I don't care. It's, it's just a Slobodan Milosevic line, yeah. right? Yeah. That guy. I mean, yeah, that was what kind of really stuck with me is that they're but good on them for letting it go. I mean, yeah. I, they definitely hit rock bottom, man. Like, it's yeah. one of those things where you're like, hey, the, it can't get worse than this. So, like, maybe we should just forget about it and drive on. Yeah, I would I would still be hunting Serbs like that uh, had done my family wrong and be like the the Serb hunter or something. Oh, you know? mean that Jake, like, holds a grudge? I think that Tom Bomber should probably watch out then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that, that was... That, that was kind of the coolest place that, places I went. Um, Bosnia for different reasons. It was it was really cool, and it was also very strange seeing those cultures come together. But everybody looked the same. You know what I mean? Like you expect to go there, and these three they don't look adversarial the same to them though. That's like with the, when you go to Israel and like you know you're like man these Palestinians sure do look just like the Israelis, and the Israelis are like no, <laughs> and yeah. the Palestinians are like oh those those disgustingly ugly Israelis. You're like, you guys look very, very similar. (laughs) Like they don't profile based on looks. They profile based on accent. Like, you know, you drive through a checkpoint, they talk to every person that comes through because they know within three words, if you're a Palestinian or you're from, you know, in Israel. 
what was what was crazy too like the you know a lot of these towns were under siege like i went to mostar and i got i did a, a tour in mostar a walking tour with this lady that had lived there lived through the siege and asking her like was there a way out couldn't could you get out and she, I'm like because you guys i'm like you look just like a croat or a serb and she's like they just went off your name so if you were a serb that had a name that sounded too bosniak or too croat you were screwed. You were getting murdered or Guess or I better batten down the hatches and just wait it out. <laughs> exactly. Well. Yeah, it was... You're riding lightning. That's why a lot of those places, like in Syria, even the siege there, a lot of the people... It wasn't just... I mean, there were Serbs in there under siege as well because they were, they were scared of what would happen if they left and got caught. And the Cro... And then by the end, the Croats came in and they were also sieging Syria. It was I mean, it was I think strange. we're seeing a lot of the same tendencies that like a politically driven ethnic cleansing type thing in the caucuses you know eastern ukraine like it's not it's not as though these people weren't living together peacefully for an extended period of time but their political alliances lie different places and now they've been incited to continue a conflict yeah just for a larger purpose someone comes in and starts feeding them reasons to hate each other and yep got a war yep Sometimes it doesn't take much. Yeah. Well, we, so, dude, I mean, like, I guess it it remains to be seen. We, we but we, we all seem to like war. <laughs> like, I mean, like, we were talking about, you and I were talking about it just the other day where it's like, you know, uh, just because we fought in a conflict for, you know, 13, 14 years doesn't mean that we have to accept that that conflict is an eventuality or that we liked it or that we want our kids to do it. Like, you yeah. and I liked it. Like, yeah. hey, like you said, hey, there it is. It's on the whiteboard. We're going to deploy. And we're going to do this stuff. And I'm like, I have no, I have no qualms about doing it. And I'm not going to feed a bunch of like, like hypotheticals to my subordinates and be like, man, we should question this whole thing. But like now as an adult, I can go, I feel as though we didn't think these things out. <laughs> like maybe we didn't need to murder an entire city in East and, you know, in, in this whole yeah. Sarajevo thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I. I think, yeah, I was talking to you about one of the guys that worked for me was, I posted something about where he's like, man, you've really changed. I'm like, no, I haven't. He's like, well, you didn't use the thing. I'm like, yeah, I did. But you were a, you know, you were a private with like six months in the army. I wasn't going to start having you second guess things when you barely knew how to do your job when we deployed, you know. We got a job to do, man. And I think that I, one thing that I tell guys all the time is like, I feel despite like a lot of people you know because everybody tries to politicize service you know like people who've never served are like oh how could you serve under this president and i'm like well it's easy because i'm just serving and to me i feel like i've made a, a major impact in my sphere of influence not just with the people i've served with but with the people that i've touched on deployments the relationships i've built with other people things like that and i think that as long as we look at it like that not just in military service, but in our lives in general, like we can feel a sense of empowerment and accomplishment without be without that being tainted by whatever the larger picture we're serving is, you know, like if, yeah. if, if I do good things and I treat other humans the right way, I don't feel bad about schwacking an asshole that's treating somebody else like crap, you know, like, Hey man, everybody I've ever killed, I think they deserved it. I mean, they were currently actively involved in doing the, doing some sort of wrong thing to someone else. Yeah, and and uh, the other thing is that that's not, you know, at our level, that's not our job. You know, once once you unleash unleash me, everything that happens is 
you know, a product of my rules of engagement. Oh, look, it's it's the Ranger Regiment, a bunch of Belgian Malwans. <laughs> yeah, you unleash me and I have my ROE, I'm going to follow it. If if something happens that isn't isn't good for the long game, then you shouldn't have put me out there. You know, that's how I saw it. Yes. God, there's like blood dripping off your teeth right now. <laughs> You're like, yeah, dude, totally anti-war. Like I've always felt this way. Oh, let me tell you about killing people. <laughs> <laughs> Some people party, bro. There's nothing wrong with partying. Well, just to circle back around to uh, you know, touch on the the Russian thing. How how and when did you find Olympic lifting? Yeah, um, you know, I started it, when I was in you know in regiment. Still, I did kind of the normal old ranger type PT like. Run. Prison lifting and running. Run. You know? More running. And then uh, once I got a little longer in the tooth there, I started to be really injured. Um, and not injured, but always in, pretty much in constant pain. Um, so I found the CrossFit, um, started kind of following that programming and that methodology, um, and just looking at mobility and strength and all these things. And, and I built in kind of my, I started doing kind of my own thing of, I still had to run, but I, I wanted to have a strong core, strong legs. Um, <clears throat> but I, I always kind of went back to CrossFit as a place to read good stuff. You know, um, they put out, still, they put out some pretty interesting articles and good content. Um, and I, I, I was doing, I, I started in CrossFit and then, um, once I transitioned out of regiment and I started kind of the the transition that you're talking about, uh, you know, I had a good amount of TBI. I had some pretty bitchin' TBIs. Um, and I went down to the, uh, the NICO, which is the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, which is a, uh, a TBI, traumatic brain injury clinic. Uh, it's like a month long. They do great stuff, man. Yeah, it's, it's like a month long. Basically, they teach you how to get your bandwidth back um, through mind-body connection and all that. So uh, I have a hard time meditating. I try. Um, but I found that the Olympic lifts were my way of meeting my mind-body connection. Um, and I, I kind of transitioned out of doing CrossFit and just specifically focusing on the, you know, the snatch and the clean and jerk. Um, <clears throat> they were They were a lot more linear not progress but planning was a lot more linear mm -hmm. which was was easier for me to to wrap my head around um and i just liked it it was yeah. it was it was measurable um and like i said you really had to have that mind body connection it's Sh shameless plug for the freedom festival <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> but uh you know you can in a in a CrossFit workout, you can put your head down and you can grind through thirty shitty snatches. Pain, if the pain at, cave. If they're at fifty percent of your max potential, but you cannot grind through a ninety or ninety five percent max effort snatch. You'll miss. Right. So I found that training in in Olympic weightlifting brought my mind body together and helped me eventually get better at you know the the meditation get better at the you know the breathing exercises get better at 
letting my mind go and and just being in the moment rather than you know having my hyper hyper vigilance and my TBI kind of controlling my bandwidth. Um, so with that, I, I did a I did a couple of meets um, and then I met the guy that's my training partner currently. Uh, he runs uh, Chasing Kilos Weightlifting in Brooklyn. That might be why you thought it was Brooklyn because I was lifting there. All right, but uh, and then he was coached by a guy named Yasha Khan, um, who started coaching me. Um, and in in coaching him, I started coaching myself. Um, Yasha is a national level weightlifter. He's he grew up in in Russia. He left when he was like ten years old, and then trained under a like legendary weightlifting coach himself. Um, and he's you know tied into the whole russian weightlifting scene i got to you know i'm lifting all the time with Vasily palavnikov Ilya ilian these guys are like world world-class weightlifters yeah some of the videos you sent from the gym just like cell phone videos <laughs> been yeah pretty it's, amazing it's oh amazing. yeah you mean the random cell phone video of this dude snatching 440 some odd pounds yeah, as yeah. A, like, like oh just a war i'm on my warm-up reps <laughs> yeah hold those, my beer those guys are they're amazing um and you know the the ma- getting contact time with them it's 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 invaluable you know just uh the amount i learn um just in a day of lifting with them not them not even coaching me um just just having a lifting session with them is just just crazy um and the differences you know that you <clears throat> the differences you learn in what we in the united states think about in weightlifting and, and you know i'm not talking about a lot of you know there's there's people who are in the weightlifting community in the United States who are very very good they're the people that have always been in it then you have the crossfitter turned weightlifter which is you know admittedly what I am but their ways of looking at things are totally different um you know the you need to make your technique better thing is it's stupid i mean it if the difference in in the and someone can take that out of context and call me an idiot, but the uh, the best soundbite of this thing working on your skills, stupid. So you know, <laughs> going, going spinning around that and, and talking about weightlifting and how the how the Russians view it. Um, if you can do a snatch with a broomstick with perfect form, then your form is okay. When you put 50 kilos on the bar, if you can still do it, your form is okay. What they preach is it's not your form, it's your strength. You're too weak in a certain position, and it's strengthening yourself in that position, right? So where a lot of people will be like, I need to work on my technique. Yeah, you need to do reps, but it's not to build your technique. It's to make you stronger in position, Yeah, right? And it's just a different way of looking at it. Um, So what you have is a lot of people that, think they're working on technique when in actuality they are ingraining bad movement patterns because they're outside of that realm where they can do it with perfect technique um, because they continue to do the full lift, uh, the full competition lift at a percentage higher than where they're able to do it perfectly. And John Dill talked a lot about this when he was on the podcast and essentially how, you know, he'd gotten really strong. Um, kind of want to say in quotation marks but also not i mean he was you know guys mm-hmm. putting up big weight but 
essentially, you know, how his range of motion was really limited and he yeah. kind of like powered through certain things that he really shouldn't had or shouldn't have done. And how then after he had backed off and after two years of not deadlifting anything heavier than 300 pounds, yeah. you know, he goes and sets up a PR with like over 600 pounds on the deadlift. Yeah. And all that was basically just from going back, backing off and getting stronger and improving his range of motion in areas that, you know, he hadn't developed that before. Right. Yeah. And that, and I've told one, and I've worked with, you know, some bigger named American weightlifting coaches as well. And when Yasha asked me the difference, um, <clears throat> I always, he's like, how do you see the difference in that? And I'm like, and I, there's no, they're, they're great. But I think the difference in, in the Russians is that they're looking at the long game. Um, whereas those, those Americans are looking at, you know, how do we get you to your next meet, right? How do we make you get a couple more kilos at your next meet? Whereas, you know, Yasha will be like, oh, you're, you're not going to do a meet for two years. You're not saying that Americans are focused on instant gratification, are you? A <laughs> <laughs> little bit. Yeah. But, and the way I describe it to them in, in like a statement is that they, the Russians, the Americans see the forest, the Russians see the trees. Right, so where in Soviet Russia, yeah, we see trees. Yes, we see trees. <laughs> trees so you. you know where I would get told, oh, your your receiving position is is weak because because you're missing at this point in the lift consistently. It's because of this. Whereas, you know, Ilya look at me and be like, oh no, it's because of right here, this small spot. You you know stopped actively moving the bar. Now we drink. Yeah, <laughs> Ilya doesn't drink. Um, He's well, a vegetarian too. Strong, strong correction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's pretty yeah, crazy. I know we've talked about getting those guys down here and doing kind of a combined lifting and and shooting clinic, maybe, or like one day of lifting and one day of shooting, or maybe we'll just do lifting. But I'm hoping that we can. John Dill's all about it. Yeah, I think we'll be doing that at CrossFit Suisponte in Durham as soon as we can get a date nailed down. Yeah, Jake so. Jake tried to nail me down on a date last time we were texting. He's like, give me a date. I was like, dude, John is John is all about this, but he's being John flaky about a date. He's hunting the, elk right now. Yeah, man. Yeah, he's holding rack on his back. But yeah, the I mean, and I would love to shoot with Yasha, Vasily, and uh, Il- Ilya just because I want to beat them at something. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, they can... They can walk into the gym in blue jeans and fucking flip flops and do a triple with my one rep max and not even break a sweat. So we'll make it happen. Yeah, and Jake. they they want to do it too. So great. Well, Jake, thanks for coming to join us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, bro. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. We will catch you all next week on the next episode of the Softly Die Living Podcast. Until then. <laughs>